Good morning again. My heart is already full this morning as we've been reading and singing and praying from God's word. Uh, what a joy it is to be together. We're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning, so if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me to John chapter 5. We're going to finish the chapter today with verses 31 to 47. John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. Let's give our attention now uh, to God's word. Please follow along with me as I read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit's illumination as we've come under the preaching of God's word and to submit ourselves to the inspired and inerrant scriptures. We pray for the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit that we would see the truth, believe the truth, obey the truth, and apply the truth so that our lives are conformed more to your word and less to the old selves that you have saved us from. We pray, Father, for grace today. Please keep me from error. Please give your church discernment so that we would all hold fast to the things that are true and that the word of God would be like an anchor to our souls in this world adrift in error. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To understand this passage, it helps to think in terms of a trial, a trial, a courtroom. On one side is Jesus, who healed a man on the Sabbath and who claims fundamental equality with God. And on the other side are the Jewish religious leaders who accuse Jesus of breaking the law and of committing blasphemy. Think of a trial. The exchange between the two turns on one word in verse 31, the word true. 
Are Jesus' words and claims true? At first, it appears that Jesus is the defendant in this imagined trial. For example, the bulk of the passage consists of Jesus calling witnesses to support his claims. Contrary to what the religious leaders think, Jesus does not testify in his own defense. He calls witnesses, John the Baptist, Jesus' own God-given works, God the Father, even the Old Testament. All of these witnesses affirm that Jesus tells the truth. So on one level, it appears that Jesus is the defendant. But that view misses what I will argue is the key to this passage. In the midst of calling witnesses, Jesus actually turns the trial upside down. The question, Jesus asserts, is not whether his words are true. The question is whether or not the religious leaders will believe the truth. That's a difference. Will they submit to the testimony of these witnesses, all of whom affirm what Jesus claims? So if this is a trial, if this is a trial, Jesus is not the defendant. The religious leaders are. Jesus is the prosecutor. He prosecutes them so that the pressing question of the passage gets turned on its head. The question is not, are Jesus' words true? The question is, will you submit to what is true? And it's at this point that we begin to see the value of this passage for the, the church today. We never sit in judgment over Jesus. Think, for example, about the, the field of, of Christian apologetics. This practice of defending the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You've probably seen books before like The Case for Christ or Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Those books are largely helpful in equipping Christians on how to answer questions about the faith. But if we're not careful, we can misunderstand the purpose of things like apologetics and even evangelism. To put it plainly, Jesus is not accountable to the world. Jesus does not submit to the world's questions. In the grand trial of truth, it's not Jesus who sits in the defendant's chair. It's us. His truthfulness has been clearly attested so that every person must answer to him, not the other way around. As Christians, we certainly answer objections to the Bible, but we do so in order to call people to submit to Jesus. We point out the consistency and the integrity of Scripture, but we do that so that people will understand they are accountable to God. Do you see the difference here? That's the dynamic at work in this passage Jesus is not the defendant. The religious leaders are. And that's the connection with our world today. It helps us keep things straight when we engage with the world. Jesus is not accountable to the world's questions. The world is accountable to him. For his word and his claims are clearly attested as true. So with that view in, in mind, here's our strategy for this morning as we study this passage, we need to see how Jesus demonstrates his truthfulness, how he calls the world to submit to himself. That's what we need to see. And Jesus does this in three ways. The first addresses the works of God. The second deals with the problem of unbelief. 
And the third clarifies the true goal of the law. Each of those ways is Jesus demonstrating the truthfulness of his, of his own claims. And so as we study the passage, we need to keep in mind that one central point. It's Jesus who stands in judgment over us, not the other way around. So three ways that Jesus demonstrates the truthfulness of who he is. Let's begin in verses 31 to 37, where Jesus performs the true works of God. Jesus performs the true works of God. At the outset, Jesus acknowledges that the burden of proof must go beyond his own claims. You see that in verse 31, where Jesus says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus does not mean that his self-testimony is necessarily false. He is the word made flesh. So by definition, Jesus always tells the truth. Rather, Jesus' point in verse 31 goes back to the law of Moses, where two or three witnesses were required to establish testimony. Jesus acknowledges that standard. But Jesus then quickly asserts that he does not stand alone. There's another witness... There's another witness who testifies to the truth. Look at verse 32. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. Friends, the key here is that this other witness affirms the truthfulness of Jesus' words. This is important. The witness here points other people to Jesus. Notice that he says the witness's testimony about me is true. So if this were a trial, this other witness is essentially saying, you should listen to Jesus. He's a truth teller. You should listen to him. He speaks what is true. Of course, this raises the question, who is this other witness? At first, we might think the answer is John the Baptist. In John's gospel, it's John the Baptist who serves as the forerunner to Jesus. And Jesus himself mentions the Baptist in verse 33. Look there. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. John the Baptist fulfilled his role. He testified to Jesus. And from this, we might conclude that, that the Baptist is this other witness that Jesus is calling in his own defense. But notice where Jesus goes in verse 34. Here we see that Jesus has someone in mind who is greater than John the Baptist. Look at verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may believe. In the trial of truth, Jesus does not depend on human testimony. To say it a different way, Jesus' standing does not rest on what people say about him or how people respond to him. Jesus is true in himself. And this means that the other witness must be greater than John the Baptist. In God's plan, John the Baptist was just a lamp shining in the darkness. Just like Jesus says in verse 35. The Baptist was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So, if John the Baptist is not the other witness that Jesus is talking about, then why does Jesus bring John up? Why is he talking about John the Baptist? The answer is the end of verse 34. Look at what Jesus says. He tells you, 
I say these things so that you may be saved. Friends, that's an incredible expression of mercy from Jesus to his opponents. He brings up John the Baptist in order to remind them that they've already heard enough testimony. That they've already seen and heard confirmation of the truth. Jesus is not on trial before them, but even if he were, they've already heard enough evidence. They've already seen and witnessed to the truth. They even rejoiced in John the Baptist for a time, as verse 35 says. So Jesus brings all of that up in order to say, you've already heard the truth, so why not be saved? Why not lay down your opposition and respond to me and be saved? It's a a striking picture of Jesus' mercy, even to those who are his opponents. Just like God the Father, Jesus takes no delight in the death of the wicked. Jesus is the judge, like we saw last week. He's the judge But he does not gleefully consign his opponents to judgment. Even now, as these very religious leaders are plotting to kill him, even now, Jesus' heart is for them to see the truth and be saved. (laughs) Friends, we ought to be reminded here, this is almost an aside, but it's an important one. We ought to be reminded here that loving the truth is not at odds with compassion to the lost. Loving the truth and compassion for the lost always go together. Those who are most committed to the truth ought to be the most committed to winsome, faithful evangelism. So, if our love for the truth doesn't lead us to plead with the lost, then something's wrong. If our idea of defending the faith means shouting people down and generally being inflammatory, then we need to repent because we've got it wrong and we're not walking in Jesus' footsteps. No one loved the truth more than Jesus and no one was more compassionate to the lost than Jesus. Even when these people want to kill him, Jesus is pleading for them to be saved. I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, we still haven't answered the question, who is the other witness that Jesus mentions in verse 32? It's not John the Baptist, at least not in the ultimate sense. So who is it? Jesus tells us, verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, Bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. In the trial of truth, God the Father testifies that Jesus is true. God the Father is the greater witness. In this context, God's voice, so to speak, is heard in Jesus' works, the very works that he is doing. So think about the context of John chapter 5. How did the chapter begin? With Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath. That healing, which is something that only God can do, is the Father's testimony about Jesus. When Jesus told that man to get up and pick up his bed and walk, it was as though God the Father were speaking and saying, this is my beloved Son, the one in whom 
all of sin's corruption and all the brokenness of the fall will be overcome. Remember, in John's gospel, the son's role is to reveal the father. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the father's side has made him known. That's the foundational truth of the book. And that's what Jesus is affirming here. Every work that Jesus does, every miracle that he performs, puts God on display. So that in seeing Jesus, the watching world sees God the Father. Jesus' works, then, are the Father's testimony that he is true. You want to know if I'm telling the truth, Jesus says? Look at what I do, and in what I do, you will hear the Father's voice. It's important that Jesus' works have not been done in secret. Openly and clearly, Jesus performs these works. He's not hiding, in other words. If he were a charlatan, then when he told the lame man to pick up his bed, nothing would have happened. But instead, before all the watching people, Jesus does what only God can do. Friends, do you see how this puts the responsibility back on the religious leaders? Jesus is not accountable to them. He doesn't owe them an explanation, for he's done the very works of God right there before their very eyes. He's not accountable to them. They must answer to him. It's clear then that Jesus is true because he performs the true works of God. Then why don't the religious leaders believe him? If Jesus does the works of God, then why don't the Jews receive him as the Messiah? That's arguably the most urgent question in this passage. It's one of the questions that should jump off the page to you every time you read the Gospels. Jesus raises people from the dead, and people still reject him. Why? Why don't they believe? Well, in verses 37 to 44, the tables turn, and Jesus confronts the true root of unbelief. This is the second way that Jesus affirms his truthfulness. He confronts the true root of unbelief. Verse 37 is where it becomes clear that Jesus is the prosecutor and not the defendant. Notice how Jesus shifts the line of questioning. Verse 37 into verse 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Again, it's clear Jesus doesn't need human testimony since God himself witnesses to Jesus. But the significant point in verse 37 is where Jesus turns the questioning around. I mean, you can hear it very plainly in the passage. Jesus goes on the offensive. The religious leaders have never heard God's voice. They've never seen his form. They do not even have God's word abiding in them. Friends, we need to understand that is about the most stinging indictment that Jesus can make to a group of Pharisees and scribes. You don't even have God's word in you. He's essentially saying the religious leaders do not belong to God at all. Remember, these are people who specialize in studying the Old Testament. If anyone, if anyone in Israel has God's word in them, it's the Pharisees and the scribes, right? Wrong, Jesus says. 
You don't even have God's word in you. Now that alone, that alone is a stinging indictment. The religious leaders do not know God. Jesus goes further. Why don't the religious leaders have God's word in them? Look at the end of verse 38. For, here comes the reason, you do not believe the one whom God has sent. Please note the powerful simplicity of Jesus' argument. To believe God's word is to believe Jesus. They're the same. That's the truth that Jesus lays out here. The religious leaders do not know God because they do not believe Jesus. So do you see how the tables have turned? This trial just got flipped around. The religious leaders imagine that they are the authority, that they are the prosecutors, that Jesus reports to them, but in reality the opposite is true. To know the truth, they must submit to Jesus. To see the truth, they have to come to Jesus. To understand God's word, they need to listen to Jesus. And that's precisely the point that Jesus presses in verse 39. Again, keep that image of a trial in your mind. Jesus is the prosecutor. Listen to his indictment, verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here's the problem with the... Pharisees and the scribes, they're content with studying the Old Testament, but they refuse to submit to the one who fulfills the Old Testament. That's why they don't have life. Remember, in John's gospel, eternal life is knowing God through his son. Eternal life is not knowing biblical facts. It's knowing God the Father through his son. And that's precisely what the religious leaders refuse to do. Verse 40 could not be more terrifyingly clear. The religious leaders refuse to come to Jesus. The language here has to do with the human will or desire. If we were paraphrasing verse 40, or maybe just translating it in a, in a bit more colloquial way, we would say verse 40 is, the religious leaders do not want to come to Jesus. It's not simply that they disagree with him. This is really important. It's not simply that they disagree with him. It's that they don't want to believe him. Their desire is to reject him. They don't have the heart to know God through his son. That's why they refuse to come to Jesus. Because their hearts are dead set against the truth. If they had a thousand lifetimes... They would never come to Jesus. They don't want to. From this, it should be clear. It should be clear that the issue with the religious leaders is not a lack of evidence. The issue with the Pharisees and the scribes is not a lack of testimony. The problem is not a lack of witnesses. The problem is the heart. The religious leaders don't want to come to the truth. They don't need evidences. I mean, they don't need evidence. They don't need witnesses. They need to be born again. Before we keep going, we ought to pause here and make the connection with our day. And the connection is straightforward. The issue, the issue with unbelievers is not a lack of evidence. The problem 
that we're trying to overcome in evangelism is not insufficient witnesses to the truth. The truth of Jesus has been plainly revealed and confirmed, both in God's word and supremely so in the resurrection of Jesus. The issue with unbelievers is not a lack of evidence. The issue is the hardness, even the deadness of the human heart. This is why all of our ministry, from evangelism to apologetics, all of our ministry ultimately rests on the Spirit's work, not our arguments or our persuasiveness. You cannot argue someone into the kingdom of God. By all means, we ought to answer objections to the Bible. We ought to explain how Scripture contains many demonstrations of the truth, things like fulfilled prophecy. But friends, no apologetic argument is powerful enough to overcome the deadness of the human heart. No gospel presentation is persuasive enough to dispel sin's blindness. In every situation, we always remain dependent on the Spirit to give life, open eyes, and bring someone to the truth. The Spirit works through means, and His means are often our arguments and presentations and witness. So my point here is not to denigrate defending the truth or calling people to believe. That's our responsibility. And yet, and yet, things often get really haywire when we elevate our responsibility to that role of sovereignty. As though everything were to depend upon us. Even when we are most faithful in our responsibility, even then we are completely dependent on the Spirit to work. That's what we learn from the Pharisees and the scribes. Unbelief, unbelief is rooted in more than ignorance. It's ultimately rooted in the human heart's refusal to come to the truth. And that's why we're always dependent on the Spirit to bring people to Jesus. Let's go back to those Pharisees and scribes for a minute. They refused to come to Jesus but they're clearly after something. So what is it that they seek? If they don't want life in Jesus' name, then what do they want? Jesus tells us, look at verse 41 into verse 42. I do not receive glory from people, Jesus says, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Jesus introduces this idea of glory, or we could say praise. He's establishing a contrast between himself and the religious leaders. Jesus does not seek glory from other people. That, that's verse 41. What he means is that he doesn't sinfully crave human praise. He's not a glory hound. In fact, Jesus' identity is not dependent on praise from people at all. Regardless of how people respond, Jesus remains who he is. His word remains true. He doesn't seek glory from other people. But the religious leaders are a very different story. The translation in verse 42 obscures this a bit. The, the ESV reads, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. But we could translate it stronger. I think it should be translated stronger. It should read like this. I know you that you do not have the word of God within you. 
the love of God within you. Jesus knows them. He knows the human heart, in other words. He doesn't just know facts about the religious leaders. He knows them by nature. He knows what's in their soul. He knows that they do not have the love of God within them. In this context, the love of God is connected with Jesus, God's Son. Remember from last week, earlier in chapter 5, when Jesus says the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing? So to have the love of God within you is to believe in God's beloved Son. Again, that's exactly what the religious leaders refuse to do. They do not have the love of God because they do not believe in God's Son. This is what Jesus convicts them of in verse 43. He has come in the Father's name, but they won't receive him. They'll receive other false messiahs, but they won't receive Jesus. So what is it that the religious leaders are after? What do they want? What is at the root of their unbelief? Notice the verdict, verse 44. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God. What do the religious leaders want? Praise for themselves. They want self-glory. Pride. Pride. That's the root of unbelief. They're hooked. They're hooked on self-glory. They love to hear other people praise them. And that craving for human approval keeps them from the truth. The religious leaders love their reputation more than they love the truth. All of their supposed devotion to the Old Testament, it's all a facade. It's a ruse. They're playing games with the scriptures in order to get people to notice them and praise them. And that's why they reject Jesus. Because ultimately, friends, trusting in Jesus Christ begins with the pride-destroying submission to him. Trusting in Jesus means that you confess that he is God and you are not. Receiving Jesus means that you must admit fundamentally, step one, you can't save yourself. Your knowledge is not enough to know God. Your righteousness is not enough to please God. Your piety is not sincere enough to approach God. Receiving Jesus is first and foremost a call to die to yourself and to pride. That's where true faith begins. With the Spirit's work to crush human pride. Jesus doesn't seek glory from other people because it doesn't matter. The only glory that matters comes from God and is revealed in Jesus Christ and received by faith. That's the root of unbelief. It's pride. That takes us right into the third and final way that Jesus demonstrates his truthfulness. Let's, let's summarize things for a moment. The religious leaders appear to, to care about Scripture, but verse 44 demonstrates that they only love themselves they don't desire the glory that comes from God. This raises the question, what is the right way then to approach God's word? How do we come to the Bible in a way that kills pride 
and leads us to the truth. That's Jesus' final point from verses 45 to 47. Jesus embodies the true end of the law. Jesus embodies the true end of the law. The image of a trial continues in verse 45. Jesus reveals that he is not the one who will accuse the religious leaders. Moses accuses them. Look at verse 45. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. So all through the passage, Jesus has indicted the religious leaders for their failure to believe. They do not have God's word abiding in them. They do not know God's love. They do not seek God's glory. This has been Jesus' indictment. And the witness against the religious leaders in this indictment is Moses. The Old Testament law, in other words, convicts them that they do not know God. How does that happen? How does Moses convict them? Look at verse 46. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now we need to understand exactly what Jesus means here. If I lost you at some point earlier in the sermon, come back and listen to this part. Okay? We need to understand exactly what Jesus means. He is not saying that the religious leaders stand accused because they failed to keep commandments. Jesus is not pointing out their self-righteousness, though he could certainly make that case. Rather, Jesus' point is that the religious leaders don't understand the purpose of the law. They don't understand the true goal of the entire Old Testament. What is that goal? The revelation of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you want to understand the Old Testament, then you must see and receive Jesus. If you want to honor Moses' purpose in writing, then you must come to Christ, who is the end of the law. You see, the religious leader's rejection of Jesus reveals that fundamentally they don't understand the scriptures and they're playing games with them. Their blindness to Jesus reveals their blindness to the whole thing. And so, so Jesus concludes with this powerful question in verse 47, a, a question that kind of seals the indictment. Look at verse 47. For if you do not believe Moses' writings... How will you believe my words? The answer is they won't believe. And that's Jesus' point. The religious leaders are searching the Old Testament because they think their diligence will give them life. But they're missing the point. No one is saved through mere scriptural knowledge. No one is saved by religious zeal. No one is saved by a scrupulous quest to know the truth. You can only be saved by trusting in Jesus Christ, who is the very life and glory of God. Brothers and sisters, this, this is the true end of all biblical knowledge, to know Christ and to make him known. All of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is intended to reveal to us that we cannot save ourselves. And that our only hope of salvation is through God's provision of a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where, 
This is where the Pharisees and the scribes missed the point. They believed mere biblical knowledge was enough. They assumed that by virtue of their religious devotion, they would find the truth. Meanwhile, the truth is standing in front of them in flesh and blood. And they don't want to see him. I I pray, I pray, no one here this morning falls prey to this same error. I want to be really clear on this. Jesus is not indicting the religious leaders for their works righteousness. He's clear on that problem in other passages, but not this passage. The point here is how you approach God's word. What is your motive and your heart for devoting yourself to the scriptures? The only saving response is to receive and trust Jesus. So so where do you fall? Do you approach God's word simply to demonstrate how committed you are to the truth? Or do you approach God's word in order to know and trust Jesus Christ, whom scripture in all of its parts reveals to be both God and Savior? Friends, in churches like ours, it's really important that we get this. If our study of the Bible is only designed to garner praise for ourselves, then we've missed the point. We're we're guilty of the same failure as the religious leaders who loved the glory that comes from people more than the glory that comes from God. From Genesis to Revelations, Scripture, Revelation, it's, it's singular. From Genesis to Revelation, Scripture's purpose is to turn us away from ourselves and towards faith in Jesus Christ. So how how do you approach the Bible? To serve yourself or to see and treasure and proclaim Jesus? It's a good test. Your commitment to the Bible ought to push you deeper into humility. It ought to push you deeper into dependence upon Christ. It ought to put you, push you deeper into a display of Jesus' character. Humility, dependence, godliness. That's how we know if we're approaching the Bible the way Jesus says to, or, the, or if we're not, if we're in the religious leader's camp of using the Bible to get praise from people. My prayer is that we would pursue Scripture for the right reasons, not to demonstrate how committed we are to the truth, but to demonstrate how deeply we need Jesus. Are Jesus' words and claims true? Of course they are. For Jesus is the word of God made flesh. His works reveal that he comes from the Father, and his life reveals that he is the fulfillment of Scripture. Absolutely his words are true. There's no doubt. But that's not the most pressing question of this passage or of any part of the Bible. The most pressing question is, will we submit to Jesus? And will we follow him on his terms? I pray that each of us will. And that we'll do so both today and every day in increasing measure. For Jesus alone is the word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. Each of us, Lord, beginning with me. Each of us feels the pull of that error that we see in the religious leaders, that that we love praise from people 
more than the glory that comes from God. Spare us, Father. Spare us from the pride that resides in our own hearts. Use your word to make us more dependent upon Jesus. Help us to see that the true end of all biblical truth is knowing Christ and making him known. Help us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.